The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The following podcast contains explicit language. Uh, on the real, I think it's great that there's so many people here. At the same time of the coin, it's I, I have a little bit of a problem with the way that it's been capitalized. Um, and I really, I'm glad that there are a lot of women here and that we're showing out. But I feel like the narrative still is white feminism. Being an activist has been made a trend, and that's the scary part. Because then once this is over, do we actually organize? Do we actually make change? Hello and welcome to Represent, and I'm Aisha Harris. So, week one of a Trump world down, and as he wasted no time on doing democracy bit by bit, the Women's March took place in Washington, D.C. and across the world last weekend. That clip you just heard is from Melissa Munsave, one of several women I interviewed while covering the march in the nation's capital that day, and also the daughter of a Colombian immigrant. And... I think it encapsulates perfectly the mixed emotions many women of color, myself included, feel about the political nature of the movement. My first guest today and Slate colleague, Christina Cotarucci, joins me here in our Brooklyn studios. And in a moment, we're going to chat about hidden figures. But first, Christina, you were at the march as well, covering for Slate. And as a sort of postmortem, I would love to know what your thoughts are on how it went and what the march may have accomplished. I was very skeptical about the march in the beginning, um, primarily because looking at the Facebook page, there were a, a lot of uh, women of color expressing dismay that the march had appropriated the use of the name Million Woman March from a march of black women in the 90s. And then those women of color were getting shouted down on the Facebook page. And it just felt like the people organizing the march were totally blind to issues of intersectionality and their feminism was very one note. Over the course of the planning process for the march, you know, a ton of women of color got involved, including the the three main organizers or Three of the four main organizers of the march who had organized a big march for justice, they brought on an incredibly diverse range of speakers. I think it ended up being, from the sort of top downside, a very well-rounded, intersectional, broadly progressive march. Mm -hmm. The march itself, uh, as many people predicted and have written since, was very white. I think a lot of people showed up for a lot of different issues. The interactions that I saw were peaceful and affirming. Yeah, um, same. I, it felt good to see people chanting about, you know, Black Lives Matter and immigrants are welcome here and Muslim Lives Matter. And I felt good about the fact that so many white women who perhaps wouldn't have gone to a protest for any one of those individual issues were sort of forced to contend with those issues as feminist issues at the march. Mm. I think it probably remains to be seen whether 
that sort of raised any consciousness or whether uh, white feminists will sort of retreat back into their bubbles. But, you know, I think it didn't accomplish anything bad. I think compared to what it could have been from the beginning when it really was just sort of, you know, a bunch of very well-meaning white women who had never organized anything before trying to make a march happen. It's impressive that this grassroots effort turned into what of, you know, maybe the biggest demonstrations the world has ever seen. So hopefully people were forced outside of their bubbles. Hopefully um, this activated folks in communities where, you know, people might feel isolated and unable to affect change. I felt excited about the march and how many different issues were represented there. But yeah, I I remain skeptical about what might actually come of it. Yeah, I think skepticism is the best way to approach this. I think I agree with you. I think it, it was a positive thing overall. But my biggest question is what's next? And, and one of the things that, you know, wasn't really too touched upon is the idea that of like what being a woman means. So we have this whole the pussy hats and you've even written <laughs> about the pussy hats and like yeah. sort of the hesitancy to embrace the what they what they are and what they're supposed to stand for. And there's the idea that, you know, not all not all women who consider themselves women have pussies that can right. be grabbed. <laughs> um, so I, I'm curious to know, like, how that point of view or how that fits in and, and how we talk about inclusion, because obviously inclusion is not just, I mean, it's not just, you know, black and Latina and Muslim. It's also we, we have trans issues right. to deal with as well. Yeah, um, I was, you know, expecting a lot of pussy and vagina rhetoric right. at the Women's March partially because Donald Trump said that he grabs women's pussies. So it was very relevant. And so in that respect, I think it makes sense that people were having lots of signs about pussies and shirts about pussies and, you know, naming their hats pussy hats. Um, And I think it's true that people with uh, pussies and female reproductive organs are disproportionately affected by legislation on health care. And people, you know, legislation about quote unquote women's health care doesn't just affect women either. It affects people of all genders who have, you know, the capability of getting pregnant or not getting pregnant. Right. And sexual assault affects people of all genders, but disproportionately women and femme presenting people. But yeah, I I did think a lot about the fact that um, it's supposed to be a women's march mm-hmm. and the focus on female reproductive organs. Uh was it was it distracting or was it? It definitely promotes the idea of a woman that is biologically based. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I feel a little bit ambivalent about that because, like I said, it is relevant. The, the reproductive systems of a female-bodied person is relevant to all the legislation that's being passed and attacking healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, especially Donald Trump's statements about women and how he and where he likes to grab them. But the the feminism that I would hope comes out of the Women's March and is advanced by the Women's March does not just include cisgender women. It includes and centers trans women, too. Um, and I imagine that a lot of trans folks who attended the Women's March had reason to wonder whether they were included in the feminism of some of the women there who were talking about uteruses and vaginas and ovaries and what have you. Right. That... Sort of ties into what we actually are going to talk about now, which is Hidden Figures. And for those who don't know, although I'm pretty sure most people know because this movie was number <laughs> one 
for at least two weeks in a row. I don't know if it was number one last weekend. I want to say it was. I think it was. Well, either way. It's been really an enormous hit. Yeah, it's become a sort of movement, especially among little black girls and being able to go see the the film and GoFundMe's being uh, being launched so that they can take hundreds of kids to see that. And you wrote about uh, last week in Slate how there's a particular sort of um, motif that or a recurring gag that happens throughout the movie um, in which Taraji P. Henson's character, she plays uh, Catherine Johnson, who is one of three women, black women who are profiled in this movie, who were assisting the the men in at NASA in helping to launch John Glenn into space. And she because she's a quote-unquote colored woman, she has to go to the colored bathrooms. And so where she's working at NASA is the there's only white people around. <laughs> <laughs> and the colored bathrooms are like, I don't remember how far they are. They I think are it was like a mile, half a mile half away. A mile. So it's a mile round trip to right. go to the bathroom. Yeah, it's a mile round, round trip just for her to go to the bathroom. And, of course, this is the early 60s, and so women – of course, only wore heels <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> and so you, you're constantly seeing her running back and forth uh, over or over Pharrell's uh, song aptly named Running for the movie. And she's running back and forth. And it's funny at first. But one of the things you touch on in the post is how this gag, so to speak, also speaks to how crucial bathroom rights are and how how basically they affect only women and now today trans women as well. Yeah, uh, it was it's funny because after I wrote that article, a black woman tweeted me to say, you know, you say this part is funny. It's only funny to you because you would never have to experience something like that, Mm -hmm. which I think was a great point. And I think the movie did sort of play it for laughs at first with, you know, and Taraji is an amazing comedic actress, um, you know, bringing her binders and papers to the bathroom because she has an enormous workload and she can't afford the time that it takes for her to go to the bathroom. So she brings her calculations with her to the bathroom. Um, and, and she's I think, kind of shuffling. Yeah. You know, and sort of, the song is playing. And yeah. I think it's uh, sort of made to feel funny at first. But then with the repetition of, you know, her her need to go to the bathroom several times a day because she's a human being. Mm-hmm. Um it's the indignity of it sort of piles up and it climaxes in um, a dramatic confrontation between her and her white boss, who his character is sort of one of the ones that I had a problem with in the movie, because I really feel like he is sort of played as this like white savior who's the only one who can get them bathroom access, which maybe he is. I mean, at the time, he was the guy with the power. But... Well, let's talk about that, because that that. Uh, character is played by Kevin Costner. She, he's her boss. And it's interesting you say white savior because, well, for one thing, he Kevin Costner has played these sort of roles before. Like, as, as a white male actor, I feel like he's been in more movies about race than your average male, like, big Hollywood movie star. That's a really interesting point. I mean, there's, I dan- not thought of that. there's Dances with Wolves. And oh, then, yeah. a cu- like, a couple years ago, he did this movie called McFarland USA. Uh, I never, I didn't see it. It looked terrible. But it was your typical, like, sports, te- oh, God, like, kids sports. Sports, sports movie where it's, like, you have a ragtag team of kids. These kids, I think, were all Latino. And he's, like, the white coach who comes in to, like train them believes in their potential yes is exactly like he's oh and he he also did a movie also with octavia spencer who is in hidden figures as well but he did one a few years ago called black 
white? Hold on. I'm going to look this up really quickly. Um, black, or is it black or white? It's called Black or White. Oh, my God. I don't even need to know what that movie's about. But what is it about? Uh, yes, it's called Black or White. It, the, I don't know if the song by Michael Jackson ever makes it into the actual <laughs> film. But it's uh, from what I gather, it's about a... Um, Octavia Spencer play and Kevin Costner play the grandparents of a daughter. I guess like both of the parents, one of the parents is either in jail or one of them died. Anyway, the granddaughter needs to be taken care of. And there's like a fight (laughs) over who's going to take care of like who's going to take care of her, like the black grandmother or the white. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) so he has a habit of playing these sorts of roles, which I think is really fascinating. But in the movie Hidden Figures... He's I I don't know. I feel like for the most part, he's not really seen as a white savior. He's just seen as like I think the film does a good job of him being just like this white guy who's sort of oblivious to all of her issues. Um, But then there is the moment after she explodes um, after having to go back and forth to the bathroom. And he I think what um what the catalyst for that is that he like calls her out he's like where where are you going yeah. like you're gone for like an hour at a time where are you going um and, and so she's been soaked in rain at this point and she right. already kind of doesn't have the correct outfit that she's supposed to wear because you know the white women who've had the job before her have all had pearls and you know exactly. have made a lot more money than her yeah so she's she's done she's had it and that i that's kind of her like what I call her like big Oscar moment. <laughs> uh, she didn't get nominated, unfortunately. But um, yeah, she just said, like has a big outburst and has a very big monologue. She's like, there's no bathroom for me here. You mean there's no bathroom for you? There here? is no bathroom. There are no colored bathrooms in this building or any building outside the West Campus, which is half a mile away. Did you know that? I have to walk to Timbuktu just to relieve myself. And I can't use one of the handy bikes. Picture that, Mr. Harrison. My uniform, skirt below my knees, my heels, and simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. Then he has his, what I would call his white savior moment, which is... Where he takes a sledgehammer, yeah, and <laughs> knocks down the colored sign. And in my NASA, there is no colored... Ba- or, I don't know. He says some <laughs> sort of tagline that, like, yay, and everyone claps. Um, but yeah, I guess the interesting thing about his character is that he makes it very clear that, like, you know, all I want to do is get somebody to the moon. That's why I have the best, quote unquote, human computer here, who's Taraji, mm-hmm. um, you know, she's black whatever it doesn't matter like she's the best one for this job and if she can do more and better calculations if because you know we have desegregated bathrooms then let's desegregate the bathrooms yeah um and you know he is uh sympathetic to to the indignity of it i think and you know he she also has to use a separate coffee pot i think he makes that he integrates the coffee pots um (laughs) But yeah, it definitely made me think about the um, increasing number of bills discriminating against trans folks using bathrooms Um, and the fact that, you know, not only is it like a grinding and oppressive psychological and emotional burden to not be able to use a bathroom, um, but it's also a health and professional risk 
people, uh, you know, you see in the movie Taraji sort of jiggling her leg while she's working. Like she has to go to the bathroom, but she doesn't want to because she's in the middle of this really important work. It's important that she keeps her job. And, you know, she wants to do really well at her job. You know, trans folks and I'm assuming, you know, quote unquote colored women at that point who had to use the colored bathroom would restrict intake, prevent themselves from going to the bathroom. And this movie drove home to me how antiquated and sadistic these laws are that, you know, the very basic human need to use a bathroom without being harassed for it or without having to, you know, wait interminable amounts of time and travel interminable distance to find, let's say, a gender neutral bathroom um, is something nobody should have to go through. Yeah, I think I, I, I don't know. Why I didn't really think about it that way, but that totally makes sense. And I think it, it's another reason <clears throat> why this movie is still so relevant um, today, sadly, in many ways. It's not colored bathrooms anymore, but now it's, you know, male, female, trans, cis. It's, it's, it's just transferred itself over, which yeah. sucks. And under this Trump administration, it's probably only going to get worse. Yeah. Marilyn? I think we should not be giving Kevin Costner's character any cookies because it's obvious he only he only did it because of his goal, which was to get John Glenn into space, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times, like, people only think about segregated bathrooms in the advancement of their own agenda. So what would it take for us as a society to see to let everyone go to the, the bathroom of their choosing, right? I wonder what the policy would be, what the agenda would be when that actually is law, which is sad to have to think of it in that way, but that's kind of where my mind goes. That's a really good point. And it makes me think of the fact that some of the most effective pushback to um, HB2, the law in North Carolina, that was one of the most prominent laws that sort of set this whole trans bathroom thing in motion was uh, – you know, the NCAA and musicians and businesses saying we're not going to open our new headquarters there. We're not going to have our big championship there in North Carolina. So North Carolina is losing all this money. So the argument sort of became, you know, for for legislators who might have been on the line, the argument was that this is bad for the state's economy, mm-hmm. which is such a sad argument to have to make, uh, you know, but it works, you know, economic arguments um, for people who can't be convinced that somebody as a human being deserves to use a bathroom. Um, you know, that's the argument that people make. And and you're right. It's it sometimes takes something like that to get people to realize that, you know, it's in my interest too to not have this discriminatory policy in place. Mm-hmm. So obviously there is a lot more we could talk about with Hidden Figures. We only just touched one very particular scene and aspect of the film. But if you want to hear more about Hidden Figures, Verilyn, our producer, was actually a guest on this week's Culture Gab Fest. Ooh, ooh, ooh. So you should definitely check it out. And you can send your thoughts on Hidden Figures to us at represent at slate.com. So... Christina, it's been quite a friggin' week in our yes. first first uh, Trump era world, and I'm curious as to what your plus and delta are. My plus for this week was uh, Michelle Obama at the inauguration. Mm. Um, <laughs> I've got to say, uh, it was a tough day to be out there in the rain. Um, reporting on the Trump inauguration and the people there for his inauguration and the protests and to get back to my desk and watch gifts of Michelle Obama and her well-calibrated snark 
or, or what I perceived to be snark at the Trump administration gave me life. Those faces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and can we uh, pour one out for Melania's faces? Oh, yes. Uh, Melania. <laughs> um, I can I can go in with my plus. Uh my plus for this week is the Oscar nominations. I'm super excited for Barry Jenkins, former guest on the show, <laughs> uh, for getting a ton of awards. Best uh, Moonlight got Best Picture, it, or not awards, it got nominations. Best Picture, Best Director for Jenkins. Uh, we have our first black female editor who is nominated on from Moonlight, Joy McMillan. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's really cool. And then, I mean, aside from Moonlight, we've, we've got Fences nominated. We have yeah, Hidden Figures, which we just talked about. But what about Hidden Fences? <laughs> Did that get nominated? Uh, I, don't, I, I, I don't think so. It should have. I mean, I, I, I can really guarantee movie. I can guarantee it probably at least one person is going to have that happen again at, on Oscar night. <laughs> and it'll be glorious. Um, and yeah, and just all the documentaries, four out of five of the documentary nominees are by black filmmakers. Uh, including Ava DuVernay for 13th and Raul Peck for I Am Not Your Negro, who will actually be on the show in a couple of weeks. Wow. Uh, actually, I this think This is really a week. jumping off point for <laughs> future Oscar nominees. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to sharing that with everyone. So that's my plus. I'm excited to see not just how many people of color were nominated, but also the range of people who were nominated and the range of stories that were nominated. Um, What's your delta? We'll end this on a negative note because <laughs> yay, it's perfect. still the first week of Trump. <laughs> My delta for this week, um, and it's top of mind for me because I'm writing about it right now, um, is uh, the House of Representatives just passed um, a bill which they pass or try to pass almost every year uh, that would make the Hyde Amendment permanent, so uh, permanently preventing people on Medicaid from accessing abortion coverage with their insurance, um, which to me, you know, if there's no access to abortion care, there's no choice. Um, And so this is just, to me, a way of punishing low-income women and disproportionately women of color from accessing a constitutional right. Um, So, you know, I would hope that the Senate Democrats uh, delta up and (laughs) prevent this from passing. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, just to end this negative note on a positive note, (laughs) I think uh, one good thing that could come out of the Women's March is um, a a reinvigorated determination to keep track of and fight for these rights that are going to be, you know, potentially rolled back again and again uh, for the next four years under this president and this Congress. That's great a, to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> That's a great Delta. Uh, as great as a Delta can be. Um, my Delta is the sort of not nah, the flip side of my plus, which is that while there were tons of black people nominated this year, um, there were barely any non-black but also non-white people who were nominated <laughs> this year. Dev Patel, who is uh, one of the stars of Lion, was the only non-black, non-white person who was nominated for an acting award. Wow. Um, so 
obviously we still have a long way to go. April Rain, who is our guest this week, uh, she would also state, and she has stated many times that Oscar So White is not just about black people. It's about including everyone. And so, you know, this is the tip of the iceberg. I think it's great that we we have so much representation. But I'm also, as I mean, as we should always be, I'm also wary and hesitant. This is only one year and this is only, you know, the it can easily slide back <laughs> again. So I think that we just need to make sure that we keep reiterating that Oscar So White is about more than just the black experience. It's about all experiences. Those are my pluses great and delta. delta. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Christina, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And will everyone check out her piece? And where can folks follow you? Yeah, they can follow me on Twitter. It's uh, C underscore Cotarucci. So try to figure out how to spell my last name. <laughs> and you can find me awesome. on Twitter. Thank you. Thank you. April Rain is the managing editor of BroadwayBlack.com, but you probably know her best as the creator of the hashtag OscarSoWhite. After membership requirements for the Academy were altered in an attempt to address the lack of inclusion at its awards ceremony last year, and now that we've seen a record number of Black filmmakers and performers nominated this year, I got the chance to speak with April via phone about how she inadvertently started a movement, her thoughts on this year's crop of nominees, and what work still needs to be done. Check it out. Well, thank you, April, for joining us. And first, before we jump into this, I just want to know if you care about these things, who are you pulling for this year for the Oscars now that the nominations have come out, regardless of their race? Right. Well, of course I care, um, but I (laughs) I am not um, providing my picks. And I don't do that because every time I do, someone says, oh, well, what about this person? And, and, you know, and then it's a a really in-depth conversation. And and I think that performances are subjective. And that's the great thing about going to see movies, right? Mm -hmm. Something that resonates with me may not resonate with you. Um, So I'm just happy um, about uh, the nominations that we've received this year, but I'm still a bit apprehensive about progress of the Academy and the entertainment industry overall. Right. I mean, one of the things you've really d- driven home, but that has sort of been lost in a shuffle in the way it's, this has been covered, is the fact that Oscar So White has never been just about Black people getting nominated. And this year we saw tons of black people who were nominated, including Viola Davis and Denzel Washington. But outside of that, the only non-white and non-black person who was nominated this year for the one of the major acting awards is Dev Patel from Lion. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, who who are some of the non-black and non-white filmmakers and actors who you like if, if that's something you're able to provide? Like, what is that? Who are those people who you thought had the potential to be nominated or, or you think were overlooked by the Academy? Oh, I, I'm not, I don't do that at all, you know, because, because then it becomes, oh, well, she's just focused on race or whatever. You know, Oscar So White is really about, um, you know, gender and disability and sexual orientation and race mm-hmm. um, and all marginalized communities. So, you know, the fact that we in almost 90 years of Academy history have only had four female directors nominated um, and only one win. That's a problem, you know, and so there, there are a slew of, of, of talented female directors that should have the opportunity. You know, the fact that in 2017, we have the first black American cinematographer ever nominated in Bradford Young 
for Arrival, you know, mm-hmm. the first black woman um, ever uh, nominated in the editing category for Joy McMillan. Those are the issues that are important to me. So it, it's not, so these people are out there um, and they're making quality films, but they need to be recognized. And so I'm actually really much more energized about what's happening behind the scenes. You know, the fact that we have four um, adapted screenplay nominees for the very first time that focus um, on experiences of people of color in hidden figures, fences, moonlight, uh, and lions. You know, that's what's important to me because I, I've always said that um, the a, a film begins on the page, on the screenwriter's page, and so it's incumbent upon Hollywood to ensure that they are fostering inclusion from the very beginning of the process. Mm-hmm. From where you stand, you talked about you're energized by the stuff that's happening behind the scenes. Like, what are you seeing from your standpoint of, like, what's happening behind the scenes? Like, how are people mobilizing and and making things hopefully better for everyone? Well, we've seen um, a, a lot of changes worldwide, actually. So Germany um, is discussing diversity or lack thereof in, in their films. BAFTA, which is London's um, equivalent of the Oscars, has new diversity requirements for two of their film categories, requiring those um, the nominees in those films to be inclusive. Right. Um, so that's something that we've never seen before, and, and I'm hoping that uh, other awards organizations take that up. Um, we see um, studios are um, doing a, a, a somewhat better job of um, looking for people from marginalized communities to tell their stories. Um, you know, and, and there are individuals that are making strides, too. So J.J. Abrams, for example, um, has said that he is going to be making significant changes within his own production company, Bad Robot, uh, and also ensuring that diversity is, you know, is, is discussed openly in the meetings with, with uh, you know, studio executives, those who can greenlight films. Um, we've also seen that there have been um, a myriad of um, emerging filmmaker and you know, mentoring programs for young filmmakers from traditionally underrepresented communities that didn't exist two years ago, um, which is fantastic because, again, you know, you want to start off with someone who is um, relatively young in the business and, and provide, you know, sponsorship and mentoring to them uh, so that they can grow up to be, you know, an Ava DuVernay or, you know, or, or whomever. And, and so I'm encouraged by, by all of those things that are happening now. Hmm. And with all of that happening, how, in, how included are you in sort of these discussions about it? I know yesterday I was following you on Twitter and, you know, Al Sharpton, tweeted yesterday uh, about the march that he led at the Oscars last year. And Mm -hmm. he also said this year, the nominations reflect a real concrete view of what America's cinema really looks like. Um, But obviously, people came for him pretty quickly and were like, how could you not point out that April Rain had uh, is the one who started Oscar so white and is basically the catalyst for why he did that that march how has he since reached out to you has he i know he has he, you say he never reached out to you before but has he since reached out to you or anyone from his team reached out to you about you know what you can do next to to move this forward yes so since uh that happened yesterday yesterday his team did reach out so we will we will discuss uh you know i guess perhaps working together but we had not had any conversation 
um, you know, I haven't talked to Reverend Sharpton um, personally, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I'm sort of a party of one. So, um, you know, what he did last year with the boycott and I guess what he plans to do this year, um, you know, I, I think every person who speaks out in support of diversity and inclusion is helpful. And I am happy to work with any person or organization uh, who wants to further this campaign. Mm-hmm. And has the Academy or the Academy president, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, reached out to you at all in the year, well, two years now that the Oscar So White campaign uh, was started? No, they haven't. Interesting. I mean, it seems like she she implemented all of those changes for the Academy last year in which, you know, they changed the the rules and the guidelines for those who are accepted as members into the Academy with the, you know, intent of... Uh, broadening the different age ranges and ethnicities and um, all demographics within who can vote for the Oscars. And I, it seems a little weird that she she's never reached out to you or the Academy hasn't at all, even though that was clearly a direct uh, response to what you did. Does that, I mean, is that frustrating or is that something you just kind of let roll off your back? Like, how does that feel for you? Um, it, it's really not something on which I focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the goal is to have uh, more marginalized people tell their stories within the entertainment industry. So I am always very uh, humbled and appreciative when someone says, you know, let's, you know, let's remember that April created the hashtag. Um, you know, but but this whole movement and the changes that we're seeing could not have happened with just me alone. You know, it was everyone raising their voices saying, you know, we want to see movies that reflect our experience, uh, you know, and we're not going to support, you know, with our hard-earned ticket dollars until we do. Uh, And so I appreciate that. You know, the the last couple of years um, for the Academy Awards, the actual presentation, we engaged in counter-programming. So we were live-tweeting a movie during the during the Oscars. And so, you know, I, I, um, and we saw that the Academy the last two years had their lowest ratings in a very long time. Uh, and so we think that we may have had something to do with that and just, you know, overall the, the disappointment with the, the nominees overall. Um, and, and so we'll see what happens this year. You know, I, as I've always said, I stand ready to work with anyone who is interested um, in continuing this conversation and making concrete change. And, and that is, uh, you know, an organization in New Zealand or the Academy itself or anyone in between. What, what do you think about the Academy's, um, the, the changes they made last year? Um, I, you know, I, I find them encouraging. So the 683 um, people were invited to join the Academy, and it was their biggest uh, by far and most diverse by far um, class that they have ever had. However, even with over 700 new members, the Academy is still 89% white and 73% male, uh, and the average age is still in the early 60s. So clearly there's more work to be done. Um, President Boone Isaacs has said that she wants to double the number of women and double the number of people of color within the Academy ranks by 2020. Um, even with 700 new people, it seems that she may fall short just percentage-wise mm-hmm. um, with respect to, I think, women. 
you, you know, but and, and that was something that she did on her own. So, you know, I think we're going to hold her to that <laughs> since that's something that she volunteered that she would do, uh, you know, but I think every little bit helps, you know, and, and um, what we know from, you know, the anonymous reports that they do every year is that Academy members are not required to view films before they vote. So while I have always said through Oscar So White that uh, this is not a quota system, you know, and this should be that these awards should be based on merit, um, you cannot say that it is a meritocracy if they're not voting on the quality of the performance or the film itself. And so if they're not, what are, what are they using as a basis for voting? Right. Um, is it implicit bias? Is it, as one Academy, anonymous Academy member said, you know, the fact that they couldn't pronounce Lupita and Yongo, and so they weren't interested in even watching the film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is it that uh, they saw a great ad in Variety a week before the votes were due, and, and that's what stuck out, stuck out in their head? Is it that they believe that um, a, you know, director or actor or whomever was due for an award just based on their body of work, not necessarily for this particular performance, and so they wanted to um, cast their vote in, in favor of that person. So I think that some changes can be made to the way um, the voting structure is set up as well. Uh, and, and I think that you know, having more diverse voices within the academy uh, hopefully will uh, make some changes from within the organization, and you know, and I will uh, uh, stand on the outside and, and do what I can to make changes, um, you know, with the support of other people frustrated with what they see. Yeah, every year I know the um, the the Hollywood Reporter. I think they do. They talk to anonymous Academy voters and the reasons mm-hmm. that they they gave for choosing what they did. And I'm always just so astonished by their reasonings behind the things they choose sometimes. Um, I mean, going going to the idea of the way in which they they change the membership rules and who can be a member, you know, some of that sort of trickles down to the opportunities beyond the Oscars, which is the opportunities within the industry itself. And one of the biggest criticisms I've seen of, of Oscar So White has been that the focus shouldn't be on the Oscars. It's pageantry. It's fluff. It doesn't really matter, but rather on fixing the industry itself. And I think obviously I'm pretty sure you agree that the industry needs to be fixed. Um, but do you find it frustrating that the conversation around the hashtag seems to get pigeonholed in this way? Um, you know, now that we are going into this, the third year, I, I do find it frustrating that, that people still don't get it, <laughs> you know, because because I feel like I have been a broken record and have been saying the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, for going on three years now. You know, it's not just about black people and it's not just about race generally. Uh, and it's not just about um, any particular, any particular marginalized group. Um, instead, you know, I've, always said that it's not about the statue, the physical representation of a job well done. Uh, it starts much earlier. The Academy can only nominate quality films that are made. So, so the onus has to be on Hollywood studios um, to greenlight more films that reflect the diversity, uh, the nuance, the complexity of the people in this country, of the people that are buying the tickets to go see these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, 
the academy has work to do um, within its own organization to make things better. But, uh, you know, the studios have to provide them quality films that should and can be nominated um, for, for them to make changes as well. Right. And, and one of the things I find so irritating about the response to that and the idea that Hollywood also needs to do better and there need to be more jobs created uh, for or uh, or more opportunities for people of color and, and women and the disabled and, and every demographic is is the idea that you like you actually wrote about this for Ebony magazine when Lee Daniels called the hashtag and the movement around it. He quote unquote whiny and let like you know if you don't like it go out and make your own opportunities that sort of very, very like older generation uh, black perspective or re- really just older generation in general of of any group where it's like you you have to you know stop complaining pull yourself up by your britches that sort of thing and I mean that just that just. I don't know. I think your your ebony piece was a was was a great rebuttal to that. And I don't know. Did you ever hear from Lee Daniels in response to that? Or no? Oh, no. And and, yeah. and and I don't expect to. Yeah. You know. I, I think that. Um, you, you know. Again, I think it's unfortunate because he, as I said in the piece in Ebony, he sort of waffles back and forth. You know. So so he understands that. Um, there's a need to have transsexual characters on the screen for mm-hmm. them to tell their stories. But then, you know, in the, in the same article, uh, you know, he says that he cast the lead of his newest program as a, a white woman because he wants white people to feel better about themselves because the country is in a dark place or something. Yeah. You know, as if, <laughs> you know, as if white folks aren't feeling um, particularly hunky-dory or that it's even our responsibility to, you know, to kowtow to their feelings, you know. Um, so, it, I mean, it, it's hard for me sometimes just because, you know, if you Google, you don't have to Google me, you know, my name doesn't need to be there, but if you just Google Oscar So White, there, I know that I've done hundreds of articles and I said the same thing as consistently as I possibly can about what it is about and what it's not, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not a quota system. Um, it's not, and, and, you know, especially for Lee Daniels, who who has risen to the top, um, you know, why not bring more people with you? Keep the door open um, so that others don't have as hard a road to hoe as you did. Right. Uh, you know, obviously we see people like Tyler Perry, who created his, his own studio because he couldn't get the control that he wanted in Hollywood. You know, Ava DuVernay said, you know what, I'm not even going to ask for a seat at your table. I'm going to build my own mansion and put my table in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are definite success stories there. Um, you know, but the question is, why? <laughs> why in 2017, or, you know, or in recent years, did Spike Lee have to crowdsource a movie that he wanted to make after having, you know, 25 years in the business as an established and accomplished filmmaker. Yeah. Um, you know, and so those are, the, those are the problems that I see still within the entertainment industry. Yes, we can do it on our own, and we always have, but why should we have to? And why do those two things need to be mutually exclusive? Right. Why, why aren't there more opportunities within the industry 
um, that we don't have to go outside and, and make our own. Now, you know, again, there, you know, Moonlight is a fantastic example of, you know, of an independent film that is getting all of the accolades um, that it deserves. Uh, you know, and and made and was a you know box office success and a critical success. Um, it, it, and so there's something to be said for making independent films and the distribution of films elsewhere. You know, Amazon got its very first nomination this year. That's huge, yeah. right? I mean, Amazon sells me dog food, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but now they're also an Oscar nominee. Right, from um, Manchester you know, the, by the Sea, yeah. Exactly. You know, and the fact that we, that we have different streaming services now, um, you know, 13th by Ava DuVernay, of the movie about the documentary about um, mass incarceration, um, you know, the fact that it's on Netflix, is a big deal, mm-hmm. um, and also that Netflix released the waivers, the typical waivers for the film, so that it can be shown with wherever without the typical licensing agreements. That's a big deal, yeah. um, you know. And and so these are the kinds of things that encourage me as I continue the campaign, um, you know. But it's also a little disheartening to say that that we don't have as much opportunity inside the entertainment industry that we should. Yeah. Do you ever get weary of sort of being the uh, the mouthpiece for this movement? Um, obviously, you know you're you're doing really hard work, and I I just know that when you're doing it so constantly and consistently, it can get it can sometimes feel like a burden. And does it ever feel like that for you? No, um, because I am I am humbled to do it. You know, it, it wasn't. Uh, intentional, you know, the very first tweet was Oscar so white they asked to touch my hair. Uh, and I, you know, I, I just tweeted that in the middle of getting dressed for work that morning in January 2015. And I went on to work, <laughs> you know, and that was it. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I logged back in Twitter probably at lunchtime and the hashtag was, uh, trending internationally, you know, and, and people were, it initially was a joke, you know, I, I meant it to be very sarcastic and that's the way people took it and ran with it, you know, how black Twitter does. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <laughs> I know. Uh, you know, it wasn't until a couple of days later when the conversation turned, um, you know, and, uh, we still, we started having very important discussions about diversity and inclusion in Hollywood and beyond. Um, you know, but when I have a friend, uh, of mine say, you know, hey, I got a fellowship um, to do my art, you know, to be a filmmaker in a program that exists before your hashtag. You know, that's all the, and it, you know, that is the adrenaline that I need to keep me going. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'll say that the lowest point that I've had was after the Oscars last year in 2016. Um, Chris Rock was the host. And, uh, you know, I saw, I didn't watch the, the ceremony live, but I saw clips afterward and I was concerned, um, that, uh, some of the skits and the vignettes that they did uh, were in, inappropriate and perhaps even offensive, um, in using, uh, young Asian American and Pacific Islander children as, uh, as props, as the little accountants. And, and some of, um, Chris's, uh, monologue also rubbed me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And the Asian American Pacific Islander community really took offense to what was going on. Uh, and they came at me, <laughs> uh, as opposed to coming at Chris or coming at the Academy for allowing, you know, for wow. allowing him to say what he said. Wow. Um, okay. You know, and, and so 
you know, their questions to me were, you know, well, why aren't you representing us? When is it going to be our turn? You know, and, and why would Chris say stuff like this? And so, you know, my thing was that, that was hurtful because, you know, from the very beginning, I've attempted to be as inclusive as I possibly could. Saying, you know, again, if I wanted to say Oscar's not black enough, I could have, right? Mm-hmm. But I wanted it to be an umbrella for all marginalized groups. Um, you know, and, and, and I mentioned them every single time I have an opportunity to do so. Um, and I also wrestled with whether it was my place to do that, you know? So as a, a cis, hetero, able-bodied black woman, am I supposed to take on the mantle of the LGBTQIA community, mm-hmm. you know? Is it my place to speak for the Asian American Pacific Islander community? And so on. Uh, and I decided that I was going to do it, at least initially, and, you know, and hope that those other groups, you know, work with me, um, you know, because I think voices are strongest when they speak, you know, as one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I had not heard from the Asian American Pacific Islander community, you know, other, other than, you know, individuals on Twitter saying, you know, good job, keep going. You know, there's no one that reached out to me and said, hey, you know, let's build a community. Uh, and so for them to come at me that night, um, you know, was, was hurtful. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, what I will say is I had the support of my Twitter followers who said, you know, hey, <laughs> you know, not only do we need to talk about, um, you know, uh, the expectation of labor of black women and women of color generally, but, you know, if you don't like what April's doing, stand up, you mm-hmm. know, and, and do your thing, either with her or, or, you know, parallel to what she's doing. And to their credit, the Asian American Pacific Islander community has become much more vocal since the Oscars of 2016. And um, with hashtags like whitewashed out and only 1%, and I fully support their endeavors. Yeah. For my last question, I ask all of my guests on the show this is, when is the last time you saw something on film or in TV that you felt represented, you saw yourself in any way, whether it's as a woman or just from your own point of view on screen? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, I, I, I will go with um, hidden figures, uh, you know, just because, you know, those three black female NASA employees, um, you know, were resolute in the fact that they were enough. You know, they were smart enough. Mm-hmm. Um, they were savvy enough to get the job done, and even though their job was very often thankless, they knew that uh, the job would not be done without them. Mm. So it resonated with me in that sense. Good choice. Yeah, and and I think it's important to note that um, Hidden Figures is a fantastic example of when we are given the opportunity, um, our stories or diverse stories will shine. You know, so Hidden Figures is, is a special case in that not only did it have critical success, but it was also number one for two weeks in a row at the box office. And we've mm-hmm. never seen that. You know, for three black female leads, um, you know, open a movie this big and do so well, uh, you know, it is unheard of. And so I think it's important for Hollywood to stop saying that they would be taking a risk uh, or, or a chance in making a particular film 
that reflects the experience of someone other than the people seated around that table that have the opportunity to green light the film. As I've said with Oscar So White, if the story is good and if the performances are good, people are going to go see that film, you know, regardless of who is the lead. So why not give the opportunities to those who haven't had them in the past? Right. Uh, We actually talked a little bit about Hidden Figures at the top of the show that will go out on Friday with this, uh, with your interview. Um, So that's a great tie-in with um, our discussion of Hidden Figures. So thank you, April. Absolutely. And that's a wrap. Thanks to my colleague Christina for coming on to chat the relevancy of Hidden Figures and to April for discussing this year's Oscar nominations. And a quick note for listeners, throughout the month of February, we'll be bringing you a weekly recurring segment pegged to the Academy Awards in which we'll be discussing Oscar-nominated films and performances from the past and how they deal with race. The films we've selected will span several decades and perspectives, and we've got some great guests lined up for these conversations. To kick things off next week, Adrian Keene, creator of the blog Native Appropriations, joins me to discuss Best Picture winner Dances with Wolves. Yep, I know, I can hear the groans now. Feel free to subject yourself to that three-hour-long Western where Kevin Costner, quote-unquote, goes native, if you'd like to refresh your memory and follow along with us. But I won't hold it against you if you don't. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcasts. And please continue to spread the word to your fam, friends, and significant others, anyone you know. Also, if you haven't already, rate us on iTunes. It really does matter, and we really appreciate your continued support. Represent is produced by the lovely and awesome Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent and send us your thoughts, gripes, suggestions, whatever, to represent at slate.com. Music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. Until next time. Music.